Right, you have a Bible. Why don't you turn to the book of Philippians, please? We're doing an introduction to Philippians. We begin every epistle like this and um, in every book, whether it be in depth or on Sunday morning. Um, as we go through the message on Sunday night, we go verse by verse. We do a full introduction. And we do this to better understand the book, the culture, um, the church that is being written to. And um, this particular um, epistle contains um, only four chapters, 104 verses. But it's really just a letter. It's like a letter that you would write to somebody else. And they, we write a letter to somebody, they read it all at one time. They don't read chapter 1 on Monday, chapter 2 on Tuesday. You know, it's the whole thing. That's why um, it's best to read the books complete. Now, it's a little harder with Isaiah, 66 books, chapters. But, um, you know, you start with a small one, then with a bigger one. Then pretty soon, you know, you just get yourself off. And, and you can read Isaiah probably in about two and a half hours, three hours, um, the whole book. And one of these times you should try it. And just get through books like that because they are letters. Now... The letter communicates the faithful commitment of, um, of a man sold out to Christ through his calling, living with great expectation and contentment, knowing God was in control and sufficient for the task that he had called him to. We want to begin by looking at the city of Philippi. The founding of the city of Philippi is interesting. It was a fortified city of Macedonia. The city originally was called Daton, then Crenides, which means little fountain because of the springs that ran down from the mountains. Philip II, the father of Alexander the Great, took possession of it from the Thracians in 358 to 357 BC, and he named it Philippi after himself. The city was located about 11 miles north of the port of Neapolis, we read that in the book of Acts on the Aegean Sea, the main route between Asia and Europe. It was on the Ignatius Way being the gateway to Europe. So if you went north, I mean east and west or west and east, that was the primary road. It was key to get everything through. The city had a small river, uh, Gangites, a mile to the east, which emptied into the Stramon, 30 miles away. Now, cities were always built in strategic places. If you've gone to Israel with us, you learned this very quickly. They're built around water, and then, of course, a place of fortification. Very important. The um, region was once famous for its gold and its silver mines, even as far back as the time of the Phoenicians. But by the time Rome controlled it, they were already exhausted. Now, Alexander's father drew about a thousand talents a year of gold, and he used much of that and the silver also to finance his navy. The city was divided into two parts, the upper city on the rocky slopes overlooking the fertile plains, and then the lower city south of the Ignatius Way was later added, extending into the plains. Here were located the forum and the marketplace in the center of the city life. The population was mostly Gentile, of um, Roman colonists, old Macedonian, and um, the greater number uh, being those Macedonians and a few Jews. Now, the history of the city of Philippi 
Um, Rome broke up, the Roman Empire broke up Macedonia into four districts politically. Philippi was the first. In 146 BC, the entire territory was formed into the Roman province of Macedonia. And in 42 BC, Octavian and Mark Anthony defeated the Republican armies of Brutus and Cassius, and the city was elevated to a colony under the name of Colonia Julia Felipensis. So the colony of Julia of Philippi. Eleven years later, in 31 BC, Octavian defeated Anthony at the Battle of Actium, settling veterans um, soldiers in it. And this was the custom of Rome. It was kind of like a reward that they would do. They would allow the veterans to settle them and it would also um, be utilized for a, a, a place of defense and a line of defense in case anything happened. Later in 27 BC, Philippi was called Colonia Augusta, uh, Julia, Felipenses, and by Augustus settling veteran soldiers there, making it again a Roman colony, giving it Many, many advantages, such as uh, autonomous government, exemption from tribute or taxes, and treatment um, as if they were actually living in Rome. So when a, when, when a city was a colony of Rome, whenever you went to Rome, you, you, you knew the structure of Rome, the, the, um, the very heart of the, of the city and the, the street. So wherever they built another city, it was like little Rome. If you go to Spain, you go to Madrid, then you go to Mexico City, you'll see the likeness, okay? So in other words, wherever you went in the Roman Empire, the major cities that were like, it was like a little Rome, and you would know exactly where everything was. Rome was very, very methodical. They used the same patterns, the same cardio streets, all the same things. So you were very, very familiar. Um, Acts 16, 12 through 21 Again, gives us some of this and the whole chapter there as we'll see. Now, the Roman colony was usually established by 300 veteran soldiers and their families as a reward, as I said earlier, for their services and to ensure the cohesiveness and control through the empire, mainly Italy and the Grecian uh, Macedonians. Now, the official language was Latin, but a knowledge of Greek was necessary for all residents. And as you know, when at the time of Jesus, the, the roads were prepared for the gospel and the common language that everybody knew was Greek. And so the New Testament was written in Greek. As a colony, it was a miniature Rome, as I said, a small scale of the imperial city exempting her citizens from polls, property taxes, that'd be nice, huh? Um, providing land holdings and transfers freedom from uh, interference by providential governments ruling their own civil affairs through two collegiate magistrates. One of them was called a pro, a, a pro eater or prorator, whichever you pronounce it, combined civil and military authority in that person. And the second was a lictor attending to the prorators bearing official uh, bundles of rods with a mace protruding from the center and a symbol of power and authority. And uh, they would beat people at times with these things. Rome was very, very gruesome. You didn't step out of line. It was a republic, by the way. 
not a democracy. America is a republic, not a democracy. Okay? The popular vote does not elect the president. It's the electoral college. That's one of the main differences between a democracy and a republic. A democracy is the worst form of government because if you have 700 people in this building and the majority of them are evil and you want to vote for something, then the majority of evil people are going to win. But if it's a republic, a rule of law, then you've got procedures by which you can deal with those issues. There's a big difference. Many people today don't understand that. And so they call America a democracy. It is not. A republic under God. One nation under God. Republic. Not a democracy. Now, this was the city of Philippi. It gives us a little background, a little idea. So you get the idea where it is that Paul went. The church at Philippi, again came, as we'll see, through the second missionary journey. The book of Acts provides for us the birth of the church in Acts 16. Uh, this was a second journey, and there had been a very strong contention, as you know, between Paul and Barnabas over John Mark. In the second missionary journey, Paul wanted to go back and see how all the brethren were doing from the first missionary journey. But uh, John Mark had wimped out in the first journey, and he went back. Now, John Mark was Barnabas' nephew. Barnabas was his uncle, so there was more of a tie there. And so they had strong contention. Um, and we are told in Acts 15, 39 through 41, that Barnabas and uh, John Mark sailed to Cyprus, while Paul and Silas went through Syria, Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Often people ask, who was right, who was wrong? I don't know. I can see good things on both sides. Number one, Barnabas is always a person who is taking chances on people. We need people like that in the church. Barnabas is probably one of the greatest disciples of the New Testament. He goes the extra mile. The mission field was doubled. On the other side, I see Paul's um, point of view. The mission field is nowhere to have somebody be a quitter. You need people you can depend on. And you can't take a chance. And so, when we'll get to heaven, we'll ask the Lord. See what he says. Now, Beginning chapter 16 of the book of Acts, the first five verses, the apostle Paul had Timothy join them as his disciples. They came to Derby in verse 1 and Lystra, and a certain disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a certain um, Jewish woman who believed, but his father was a Greek. So here you have Timothy's mother that had been unequally yoked, and she was reaping the consequence of that. Nothing new. There are always people who are Christians who don't obey the Lord and they become unequally yoked. And then they're in an equally yoked marriage. And it's very difficult at times. And apparently she was a believer. And here again, Timothy also, because in verse 2, Timothy was well spoken of by the brethren there at Lystra and Iconium. And in verse 3, Paul wanted to take Timothy with him on the trip, the second missionary journey. 
And so he took Timothy and he circumcised him because of all the Jews of the region that knew that his father was a Greek. He didn't circumcise them for justification to be a Christian. He did it because he was a Jew and Paul always went to the synagogues first and they knew his mother was a Jew. You become Jewish through your mother, not through your father. Okay? And so Paul was being wise in his decisions. As you know, in Acts 15, Paul, Peter, and James did not command or demand the Gentiles to be circumcised to be Christians. The Jews, the Judaizers wanted to, and the letters and decrees went out saying, there are certain men that went out from us who are troubling you. We have no part of that. Just ignore them. We just require that you, you know, abstain yourself for an occasion from blood, from strangled things. And if you do this, you do well. You're saved by grace through faith. So the decision of Paul here is not a contradiction, but a mark of wisdom because of the uh, ministry that he had. In verse 4, they went through the... the cities and uh, delivered them the decrees that had been given by the first church council in Acts 15 um, that had been determined by the um, apostles and the elders of Jerusalem. And this was to protect them from those Judaizers that wanted to make Christianity an extension of Judaism. Okay? You have to make sure that you do not put Christianity with anything else. Don't blend it. It's completely distinct. In verse 5, they resulted, this resulted in the churches being strengthened in the faith and increased in number daily. So notice that Paul went out and he just ministered the gospel. People heard the gospel, they repented, and maybe it was just 5 or 10 or 15. And Paul said, all right, and he'd be there for about a week or two or whatever the time was. And then he would, was before he left, he said, okay, you guys are the elders and you're the pastor. And they find out who the pastor is and that's it. They were the oldest in the Lord. And Paul trusted the Lord for the church. God was doing a work. God builds his church. God adds to his church. God calls men. God anoints men. God directs men. Today, in the modern days, we think that we can do a better job than God. Now, they didn't have fancy buildings. They didn't have comfortable chairs. They didn't have air conditioning. They didn't have a great sound equipment. <laughs> but people who got saved, they turned the world upside down. Today, the modern church can't even turn a city upside down. <laughs> and they had nothing. But they had the gospel, had the power of God. Very, very important. Now, the book of Acts makes it very clear that God was speaking, guiding, and directing their steps in the missionary journeys, particularly here. In Acts 16, in verse 6 through 12, we see this. In verse 6 and 7, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach in Asia and Bithynia. Number one, it shows us that a need does not constitute a call to that particular thing. It's God's timing. He directs and guides. Sometimes the the place is not ready for the gospel. Sometimes God has something on more priority. So it's important that we allow God to lead and guide us. I cannot meet every need. And because I see a need doesn't mean God has called me there. I have to make sure God's the one directing me there, right? A lot of people just see a need. They're running around like a chicken with their head cut off. I can't meet everybody's needs. 
So I must hear the voice of God so that I go where he tells me to go to do the work that he wants me to do. And God will direct somebody else to do something else. Very important. Verse 8 and 9, Paul receives the call to Macedonia in a vision next. God was directing, guiding by saying, no, not here. No, not here. Not right now. The call directs us to, the, to meet that need. As he closes those doors and says no, God was speaking clearly. He directs them to Macedonia. Immediately they went to Macedonia, verse 10 says, concluding the Lord had called them there. It's a lot easier to steer a moving object. You know, often we pray to the Lord, Lord, direct and guide me. We should pray, Lord, let me listen and hear your voice. <laughs> God is always there to direct and guide us. God is always there to speak to us. Am I listening? Do I have my ear tuned to God? That's the most important question. God always initiates. We respond. Now here in verse 10, notice the plural pronoun we. It appears for the first time here in the narrative in verse 10, indicating Luke joins them at this point and it runs all the way till verse 17. We and us. So at this point in verse 10, Luke joins Paul and Timothy. Some believe that Luke was the man in the vision, but it's only an opinion. We don't have anything declared in Scripture like that. Now, in verse 11 and 12 of chapter 16, they sail from Troas straight to uh, Samothrace, arriving the next day at Neapolis, and then came to Philippi, the first city of that part of Macedonia, a colony of Rome, as we said, geographically coming from the east. He's breaking into Europe for the first time the gospel in this second missionary journey. The city was called the foremost or the chief city of the district of Macedonia. Notice in verse 12. This does not mean that it was the capital of the province. Thessalonica held that position. Nor does it mean that Philippi was the capital of the district. For Amphipolis held that. The phrase was an honorary title given certain cities. A leading city for Philippi was the only colony in that area. The city's primary function was to defend any attacks from barbarians and hordes of, of, uh, of enemies to preserve the Roman peace. Again, it was twofold, rewarding the veterans and using them as an extension for defense lines. Now, in chapter 16 of Acts, verse 13 and 15, we find the first convert at Philippi by the name of Lydia, a wealthy woman from Thyatira, a seller of purple. The woman met, the women were meeting there at the riverside, by the river, due to the fact that there were not enough Jewish men for a synagogue, which had to be at least 10 men in verse 13. So it shows you that the Jewish population was not that large. And if there were Jews more than that number, they really weren't living out their faith. They had been um, 
Hellenized into the Greek culture, perhaps. Now, the woman, Lydia, in verse 14, heard the gospel, and the Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. This is how God works the gospels. Ladies and gentlemen, you heard the gospel at one time, and I don't know what your mental state was, that where were you um, in terms of your uh, belief in God or whatever your position might have been. Uh, maybe you, you had been witnessed before, maybe you hadn't. But all of a sudden, the gospel went out, you, and, and the Holy Spirit made known to you your need of Christ, and that you were in a, a position of a sinner under the wrath of God. And he gave you the opportunity to decide whether you agreed with God and whether you wanted to be saved. This is the power of the gospel that Paul's not ashamed of, as he declares to the Romans in Romans 1, 16 and 17. It's the power of God for salvation, the Jew first and to the Greek. The purple dye here was obtained from shellfish that she um, um, sold and that she marketed. And each shellfish would provide only one drop of that dye. Therefore, its rarity and beauty demanded it to be very costly. It was very high-ended. So she was a very wealthy woman. Since Philippi was a colony of Rome, it loved the royal color, using it to trim togas, um, tunics, rugs, and tapestries. That was a, a royal color for Rome. Lydia was a worshiper of God, a proselyte. Now she hears the gospel. Now she's a Christian. Remember that Paul says throughout the New Testament, especially Ephesians and Colossians and them, that there's neither male nor female, bond or free, Jew or Gentile, um, but one in Christ Jesus. The middle wall of partition has been broken down. The woman in verse 15 and her household then were baptized and she opened her house to the apostles. She was so appreciative of the gospel message. But stop and think. The women were praying at the river, right? Paul got a vision of a man from Macedonia, right? Do you connect the dots? God works through people praying and then God is working on the other end. God always ties two things together. So it's important that you trust God in prayer because as God lays those prayer desires or promptings in your heart, they may not make much sense to you, but God is working through you to do the work he wants to do at the other end and time together. You can go to China right now. You don't have to get a plane. Just get on your knees. You can go to Russia. Be praying for them. Iran. God works like that. The party consisted of Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke at this point. Now in verses 16 to 24, the second convert was a demon-possessed girl. Wow, what a church, huh? <laughs> in verse 16 and 17, Paul and his companions were going to prayer when a demon-possessed girl who brought great gain to her masters through the spirit of divination, um, kept proclaiming that they were servants of the Most High God, declaring the way of salvation. Now, reading that, you would say, what's wrong with that? You know, like he's getting free advertisement. Well, Paul didn't like Satan's advertisement. After many days, in verse 18, Paul was annoyed and he cast out the demon from the young girl. And 
delivered her. You perform an exorcism. In 19 through 21, notice her master seeing their hope of gain gone. They brought Paul and Silas before the magistrates and accused them of teaching customs not lawful for them, being Romans. Now remember, Paul's a Roman citizen. Paul could have pulled out his Roman passport at this point. He never did. But yet when he is um, in prison over at uh, Caesarea Philippi after two years of being used as a political scapegoat, he does pull, he appeals to Caesar. There are some times when God will allow you to go through the suffering to receive the persecution and not pull your rights and you will be obedient to the Lord because God is trying to use you. God has some people here to get saved and God wanted to raise a church up. And Paul was an obedient servant. See, we always think that if God is in the work, the doors are going to flow easy and there's not going to be any trouble and it's just going to be pie in the sky. Now, listen how Paul describes um, Ephesus. And God has opened a great... A great open door at Ephesus. Many adversaries. <laughs> How different Paul saw open doors from what we see so often. In verse 22 through 24, they beat them with rods. Those lictors came, they beat them with those rods that we described. And they put them in stocks in prison. This was a prison within a prison. This is where all the bad dudes are. Down below ground. Which brings us to our third convert, the jailer and his family, verses 25 through 34. In um, 25 through 26, Paul and Silas at midnight were praying and singing to God while all the prisoners were listening. Then all of a sudden, an earthquake shook the entire jail, the doors flew open. And their chains all fell off. You think the prisoners kind of freaked out a little bit? That chains just fell off, doors just opened? As they're listening to these guys who have been beat to a pulp and stocks and they're worshiping God? Probably saying, what are these weirdos and all that? And all of a sudden the earthquake comes, their shackles fall off, doors fly open. <laughs> The jailer, in verse 27, awoke from his sleep, thinking the prisoners had escaped, seeing the doors open. He drew his sword, he was going to kill himself, because he knew if he didn't kill himself, Rome would kill him. He was responsible for those prisoners. In 28, Paul called out, do yourself no harm, for we are all here. You think the jailer kind of freaked out too? One of the prisoners is telling them not to harm himself. I can hear the other guy, yeah, do it. Who are these guys that got beaten or worshiping God and, and, and do the doors flying open here of the jail and my cuffs coming off? Is there some connection here? In 30 to 33, the jailer and his entire family were led to Christ, baptized, and they washed the stripes of Paul and Silas from the beatings. 
Now, this is not a promise that your entire family is going to be saved if you are. Many people try to claim this sometimes as Christians. That if you're saved, your whole household is going to be saved. That's completely out of context. Every person is saved individually. When I was saved, it didn't mean my wife Trudy was saved automatically. It didn't mean that my children were saved automatically. Now, there are some families that do get saved altogether at different times or at one time, but not every family is saved. Sometimes a husband gets saved, not a wife, or vice versa. Sometimes one of the children is saved and the rest of the family is not, but it's all an individual choice. God has no grandchildren, only sons and daughters. When you get to verse 35 to 40, the church was established at this point, and it wasn't that long. And it was helped by Luke. In um, verse 35 to 36, the magistrates sent word to release Paul and Silas. But Paul returned a message that they were not going to go quietly seeing they, they had beaten them openly as uncondemned, this is what freaked them out, Roman citizens. Ooh. If you touched a Roman citizen, what you did to them would be done to you or worse. You never touched a Roman citizen. Now, that used to be the case about American citizens until 1979 when they took Americans like trophies in Iran. Old Persia with the Ayatollah. The peanut president was in, Carter. One of the worst presidents we've ever had. But we've had a worse one since then. So they kind of freaked out. You're a Roman citizen? Oh, man. No wonder they wanted to leave quietly. Now, let's just, let's just call it a day, okay? <laughs> the authorities feared their mistake. Hearing they were Roman citizens, they pleaded with them to leave in 38 through 40. Politicians, right? Power. They would be liable for severe punishment for beating Roman citizens. In verse 40, Luke uses the third person, they, in contrast to us and we of verse 10 and 11, which does not appear again until chapter 20, verse 6, indicating that most likely Luke stayed behind to help the church at this point. As you can see, the church is being established under some very difficult situations. This isn't like a Billy Graham outreach. <laughs> the church at Philippi was the first church planted in Europe. So you've got um, some women. You've got a jailer and his family, a demon-possessed girl. <laughs> and if there's anybody else, we don't know. But listen. They were new creatures in Christ Jesus. 
Old things have passed away. Everything had become new. Christian, Christ-like. The church was established under opposition, persecution, and suffering, which I believe was the leading factor for the tender and loving fellowship that Paul had with them. This was around 50 AD. The church was uh, predominantly Gentile and a few Jews, as it was a military colony and not a, uh, a maritime city. Now, Paul was always concerned with the churches of Macedonia, as you know, and had uh, visited two other times, including Philippi. We um, have this in Acts chapter 20, verse 1 through 3 and 6. He speaks to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 1 through 15 about it, and then also chapter 2, verse 13 and 7, 5, and he makes mention of that. In fact, Paul made a second journey at Philippi in A.D. 55, 56, on his third missionary journey, also in Acts 20, 1 through 6. Paul must have passed twice on his outward trip towards Corinth, and again on his return to the, uh, at that time when he was on the way to Jerusalem, as uh, Acts 21 indicates. The last mention of the Philippian church history is related to the visit of the Christian um, martyr Ignatius early in the second century on his way to Rome under military guard. So as we can see, the church, um, uh, it, it wasn't easy. When these people made a decision for Christ, it was going to cost them. Um, my becoming a Christian didn't cost me a thing. The only thing I gave up was hell. I've never suffered for Christ. Because somebody calls you a Jesus freak or gives you a, a sign with their hand or something or whatever, that's not persecution. <laughs> that's no big deal. The church and Paul had a loving relationship. He expresses his love for them in the beginning in chapter 1, verse 4. He says there, I thank my God upon every members of you. He always remembered in verse 7. He says, just as it is right for me to think of you all because I have you in my heart inasmuch as both in my chains and in, my, in the defense and the confirmation of the gospel, you and all are partakers with me of grace. You can go on, there's others in verse 8 and so on and so forth. And Paul uses the term beloved in brethren several times. Paul held a special place in their hearts as um, they sent to him a financial gift twice when he was at Thessalonica. We get that in chapter 4, verse 16. Now, Paul had once again received... Um, another gift at Rome by the hand of Epaphroditus who had become deathly ill in chapter 2, verse 30, and then 4.10, he mentions that. He had come to Rome to help Paul out and he had become very sick and almost died. And, um, and they had uh, abounded in their liberality towards the poor saints in Jerusalem, 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 5. Um, they were very, the Macedonian churches were very, very benevolent in the raising of money for the poor saints of Jerusalem. So this was the church of Philippi, 
of the Philippians to give you an idea in the background there. Let me look at our third and last point, the epistle to the Philippians itself. Now we'll look at the letter itself. The authenticity of the letter is very evident. External evidence is overwhelming as a genuine letter from Paul. Eusebius, Origen, Hippolytus, Clement of Alexandria, Irenaeus, Polycarp, Ignatius, and Clement of Rome all gave their witness to the letter being of Paul. All of them quoted from or referred to the epistle and accepted it as being from the hand of Paul. Internal evidence is also overwhelming. The author is said to be Paul. Verse 1, Paul. Simple. The apostle is a prisoner at this time as he's writing this letter. He mentions in chapter 1, verse 7, 13, 14, 217, and 422 his situation of being in prison. Personal knowledge and affection is all over, as I've already read the beginning verses, one, chapter 1, verse 3 through 4, chapter 2, verse 12, chapter 3, 1, 4, 1, and others. He has very affectionate things to say to them. But also personal knowledge, not only in affection, but it is one of the four prison epistles. You have Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians, and Philemon. All four of them were written from prison. And Paul knew that God had put him in prison. If Paul had not been in prison, in fact, he's going to tell him in the opening chapter there in the beginning, I am here by divine appointment. This is my next orders. And by the way, the Praetorian Guard says, Hi, some of them have come to Christ. Don't worry about me. And as he was in prison, then he received people and he wrote these letters out that were so necessary for the churches. Now, no one has ever challenged the authenticity of the letter until the late 1700s and 1800s. Some have suggested a combination of two or three letters as the content of the Philippians without great acceptance. So a lot of people have a lot of, you know, you go to seminary, you do your PhD and you think of something stupid and you get a, you write your thesis and they give you a PhD and then they call you a scholar. When it directly contradicts what the content is in the book, the Bible. Philippians appears in the oldest text of the New Testament, the moratorium canon of the late second century. Many of the books of the Bible have been attacked by the liberal neo-Orthodox that came out of the German uh, scholars movement. Uh, Niebuhr and uh, Brunner and, and, and many of them. Um, but uh, the letter has always been accepted. Now the origin of the epistle, some have proposed Caesarea, Paul's first imprisonment. At this time, Paul was imprisoned for two years, if you remember as he was accused falsely of bringing Gentiles into the temple and then almost killed them. Um, but at this time, he was not expecting to be released as in this epistle, as he indicates in chapter 1, verse 24 and 25 and chapter 2, 24. So it doesn't fit. At this time, all Paul could do is appeal to Caesar, which he did in Acts 25, 11. At this time, Paul wrote three other epistles, as I said, Colossians, Ephesians, and Philemon. Others have proposed Ephesus 
an imprisonment that we have no record about, but they still, you know, they write their theses. At this time, there is no mention of Paul's imprisonment in the book of Acts, so we cannot teach from the absence of Scripture. At the location, Paul could have appealed to Caesar as he did at Caesarea. But again, we have no record of it. Rome is the most favorable of the three. And we have that in the book of Acts, chapter 28, verse 30 and 31 specifically. Yes, he was there in his own hired house. And everybody came in. He was not hindered. No one was prohibited. And he ministered unto them the gospel. Um, he identifies himself as a prisoner, as we have already mentioned. Um, mentioning his chains, the defense of the gospel. He's being poured out as a drink offering. And... Uh, and that he was appointed for this in chapter 1, verse 7, 14, and 217. He refers to the Praetorium Guard or Caesar's house in chapter 1, verse 13 and 422. He was planning on sending Timothy to them as soon as he found out about his appeal. This is given to us very clearly in chapter 2, verse 23. He assessed that his appeal was going to be favorable. And would soon visit them in chapter 1, verse 24 and 224. So we know that Paul was released from his first imprisonment in Rome. And we believe then as he was released, then he was rearrested again, which he writes to Timothy, and that he was going to be put to death. We believe that's a different one from this one that he's talking about. So the date is probably about 60-61 A.D., about 10 years after Paul first visited the church, which God established. Now, the bearer of the letter, as I mentioned earlier, was Epaphroditus. He is mentioned in chapter 2, verse 25 through 28. He's called a brother, a fellow worker, a soldier. He's called a messenger from Philippi to minister to Paul's needs, a servant of God. He should not be confused with Epaphras the pastor of Colossae in Colossians 1, 7 through 8 and chapter 4, 12 through 13. Now the occasion of the epistle and other issues are treated in the letter. The occasion, I believe, primarily is threefold. First, in chapter 1, verse 12, to comfort the Philippians concerning his imprisonment. And he says there, listen, some people are being intimidated and some people are preaching Christ thinking that they're just going to add hurt to me so they preach Christ. Others are preaching because they're emboldened because I'm in prison. What do I care as long as Christ is preached? I could care less why he's preached. <laughs> Amazing to me. Secondly, the comfort of Philippians about Epaphroditus who had been sick and nearly unto death and to confirm that he was going to send them back and he commends them that he was such a man that should be esteemed in chapter 2 verse 25 through 26 and also in 29 why would Paul say this because Paul knows human nature when he got back probably some would say well you know you wimped out you didn't fulfill your call Paul says this guy served me served the Lord unto almost the point of death. This guy, you mark him as an example. 
And then thirdly, to encourage them in their persecution and opposition in chapter 1, verse 28 and 29. I think those are the three main reasons found in the epistle. Now, there are side issues that the epistle presents to us, and there are a few, but they're not the primary purpose. First, to remind them of the unity of the body, bearing with two women. They were disrupting the unity of the body. They had some differences, some different, different viewpoints, perhaps. Yodia and Syntyche in chapter 4, verse 2. And they needed to be the, in the unity of Christ, as chapter 2, verse 3 says. And so he tells the elders, you give them a hand, get them squared away. Also, to prepare for Timothy's visit, as I mentioned in chapter 2, verse 19. And thirdly, to warn against the Judaizers in chapter 3, verse 2. Dogs, mutilators of the flesh. 317.41. Fourthly, to encourage them in their anxieties and to rest in God in Philippians 4.16. Be anxious for nothing and everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Make your request known to God. And the peace that passes all understand will, will bring your heart and your mind in peace. And so they're going through some difficult times. And he commends them to God. Fifthly, to thank them for their gift in chapter 4, verse 10 and 14 and 16. The epistle has been called the epistle of excellent things, the epistle of joy. The epistle is one of the most personal of all his letters as you read it. But six, to remind them of the Lord Jesus' return. Six times the Lord's return is mentioned. 1 6, 1 10, 2 16, 9 through 11, and 3 20, and 4 5. Six times in these four little chapters, the Lord's coming. We should always be looking for the Lord's coming. Always. Eminent. Now, the epistle has some key words. Let me just give you some. <clears throat> the word gospel, which means good news. We get our word evangelism from it. Uh, in chapter 1, verse 5, it says fellowship in the gospel. Chapter 1, 7 uh, and 17, defense of the gospel is said. In 1, 7 again, confirmation of the gospel. In 1, 12, furtherance of the gospel. 1, 27, conduct, conduct worthy of the gospel of Christ. In 1, 27, it says stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. In 2.22, serve with me, speaking of Timothy, in the gospel. 4.3, labor with me, talking about the women, in the gospel. Gospel, very key. Second word, fellowship, which means a sharer, a participator, a partner in common. 1.5, fellowship in the gospel. 1.5 and 2.1, fellowship in the spirit. 310, fellowship in his sufferings. Speaking of Christ. Third word is key, joy. Joy is the first manifestation of the fruit of the Spirit, as you know, in Galatians 5.22. The gospel brings fellowship that produces joy in spite of the situation and circumstances, people or needs. Philippians 1.4, 1 125. Uh, verse 26, you have chapter 2, verse 2, 16, 17, 18, 3, 1, 3, 
three, four, one, four, 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 ten. All over there. Joy. Joy is the evidence and the virtue of the fruit of the Spirit again in Galatians 5, 22. The fruit is singular. Agape love. The first manifestation of agape love is joy. You ever see someone that loves somebody? You ever see the groom waiting for his bride to come up? There is a joy all over his mug. Joy and rejoicing is mentioned 17 times in the epistle. Joy is the result of the Spirit of Christ. Chapter 1, verse 19. Joy is evidence, again, of a person who is born again. The names and titles of Jesus appear 51 times in the 104 verses of the epistle. This is the combination. Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus, Lord Jesus Christ, Lord Jesus, Lord and Savior. It's all about Jesus. Let me give you some key verses. Chapter 1, entitled it, Christ Our Life. Here's the key verse. Verse 21. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Chapter 2, Christ Our Mind. Here's the key verse, 2-5. Let this mind be in you which is in Christ Jesus. Chapter 3, Christ Our Goal. Key verse, 310. That I may know him, the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his suffering, being conformed to his death. Chapter 4. Label it, Christ our strength. Key verse, 4.13. I can do all things through Christ Jesus who strengthens me. So four chapters. Christ our life, Christ our mind, Christ our goal, Christ our strength. The outline of the book falls under those four categories I gave you. In chapter 1, Christ our life, verse 1 through 11, we have the express conference of Paul in the gospel, past, present, and future. The greeting and salutation, verse 1 and 2. The thanksgiving, love, and confidence about the final salvation, 3 through 8. The prayer of love for their ongoing walk without offense and righteousness, 9 through 11. 12 through 18 of chapter 1, you have the express confidence of Paul and the furtherance of the gospel in prison. Verse 12, God had sent Paul. Verse 13 and 14, God was causing people to respond to the gospel due to his imprisonment. 15 through 18, God was using good and bad intentions of men to preach Christ Jesus. Wow. Verse 19 through 30 of chapter 1, we have the express conference of Paul and his deliverance. In 19 through 20, Paul knew his deliverance would come through their prayers and spirit of God in boldness, in life or death. 21, Paul's life and death were in view of Christ. In 22 through 26, Paul was torn between the two, but was confident he would be here while uh, was needful, and it would be a greater benefit to be here with them. When you get to verse 27 through 30 of chapter 1, we have the express conference of Paul in their conduct through sufferings. Verse 27, to be worthy of the gospel. 
to not be intimidated by the adversaries in verse 28. And in 29, to endure suffering for Christ's sakes. And in 30, to share in the same persecution as he had at Philippi. When you get to chapter 2, Christ our mind, the first 11 verses, you have the example of Christ in service and in suffering. In fact, verse 1 and 2, be like-minded. 3 and 4, be humble, esteeming others. 5 through 11, be a servant like Christ to the point of death. Chapter 2, 12 through 16, the call to appropriate Christ-likeness. 12 through 13, by yielding to God. 14 through 15, by being blameless as lights. 16, by being ready to rejoice in the day of Christ. Chapter 2, 17 through 30, the examples of such humility that he's mentioned. 17 and 18, Paul in prison, being poured out as a drink offering in service. 19 through 24, Timothy as a son in the gospel. 25 through 30, Epaphroditus as a sacrificial servant. When you get to chapter 3, Christ our goal. You have verse 1 through 11, the warning against self-righteousness standing apart from Christ. 1 through 3, the circumcision of the Judaizers. 4 through 7, the human achievements are all a pile of fertilizer, manure. 8 through 11, the excellence of the power of the resurrection. 12 through 16 of chapter 3, the pressing on into maturity. 12 and 13, no man has arrived or finished the race while here on earth. 14, nothing will do but the upward call of God. 15 through 16, nothing less than maturity according to your age will do. Chapter 3, 17 through 21, the exhortation to walk as citizens of heaven. The pattern is after the apostles, verse 17. 18 through 19, the destruction of those who do not walk so. 20 through 21, the citizen of heaven is looking for his savior. The last chapter, Christ our strength. 1 through 9, the exhortation for unity and God's peace. 1 through 3, walk in unity. 4, walk knowing the Lord is at hand. 3, verse 5 through 7, walk in prayer and peace. 8 and 9, walk in being a doer. 10 through 14, the proclamation of contentment. Verse 10, thankfulness for financial help. 11 through 14, the attitude of contentment. Verses 15 through 20, we have the commendation of their generosity. 15 through 16, their past gifts. 17, the fruit of their account. 18, their gift by Epaphroditus. 19, their sowing will return to them by God. And 20, their glory was to God. 21 through 23, the benediction. The saints, verse 21 and 22. The grace of God, verse 23. The letter of Philippians is known as the epistle of joy for it speaks of the consecration life being and having total dependency and confidence in the gospel, not for isolation, but for insulation through a personal relationship and fellowship with Jesus Christ. This is the epistle to the Philippians. And so this introduction will help us to understand the letter much better as we go verse by verse. The city of Philippi, the church of Philippi, the epistle of Philippi. Let's pray.
Father, thank you for your grace, your love, and your goodness. We love you. We thank you. And Lord, we pray that you would just continue to direct and guide us in all things. Thank you for your love, Lord. We pray that you would just um, use this epistle once again to mature us, to press us forward. As you're praying, if you're here tonight, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has brought you here to be saved, to repent from your sins. Maybe you're over the internet. If you've never accepted Christ, then God says that you are separated from Him. But that Christ died for you in your place. And if you believe that He is God who did exactly that, that you can call upon Him and He will save you. If this is your desire, over the internet or here right now, you can accept Him right now. This is your prayer of repentance. And He's going to make a new creature of you right now. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me, Lord, for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. I accept you as my Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.